All right, well, good morning, NBC. Welcome back for week eight. Hard to believe it's week eight of our sermon series on the book of Philippians, which we're calling Choose Joy. Now, this is the last month of the series before we enter a very exciting summer. Uh, Today, we've come to the end of Philippians chapter 3, and I want to talk with you this morning about the topic of spiritual legacy planning. Spiritual legacy planning, which is an interesting topic because I think a lot of us think about our legacy, but the reality is very few of us witness the full fruit of our legacy in this life. Uh, For example, uh, Dr. William Leslie... He was a missionary, and in 1912, he left the United States as a medical missionary uh, to go to, the tribal people, go to tribal people in a remote corner of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And he stayed there for 17 years, giving 17 years of his life to this ministry, but then he eventually returned to the U.S. a really discouraged man because he believed that he failed to make an impact for Christ while he was there. And then he died nine years later thinking he made no impact. And I wonder if anybody here this morning can relate to that. Is there something, is there something or some ministry that you've given your life to, but you're, you're discouraged because it seems like you're just not making an impact, like you're, you're failing? Well, in 2010, another mission organization returned to the same area of the Congo and made a really surprise discovery. And here's what they found. They found a network of reproducing churches hidden like a glittering diamond in the dense jungle in this same remote section of the Congo. Each village in this area where Dr. Leslie ministered had its own gospel choir. They wrote songs about Jesus. In fact, they had sing-offs in the jungle. They even found a 1,000-seat stone cathedral, you can see on the screen here, that got so crowded in the 1980s that a church planting movement started because apparently Dr. Leslie had traveled through this remote region teaching the Bible, promoting literacy, starting the first organized educational system these villages had ever seen. For 17 years, Leslie fought tropical illnesses, charging buffalo. Apparently they have buffalo in the Congo. Armies of ants, leopard-infested jungles, all because he wanted to bring the gospel to this remote area. And he died feeling like he had failed. But instead, his faithfulness and his courage left a powerful legacy of vital churches. Dr. William Leslie left a legacy for Jesus, which he never fully saw in this life. Now, I want to ask you, how do you leave a legacy like that? Dr. William Leslie was in the business of spiritual legacy planning, or put another way, he lived his life with the end game in mind. And because of that, even though he didn't see the full fruit here on earth, he changed the world for Jesus. Friends, are you cultivating a spiritual legacy plan? Now today, later in the service, we're going to celebrate Graduation Sunday for high school graduates, thinking about college graduates too. And if you're here today and that's you, I just want to challenge you. It is never too early to start spiritual legacy planning. It begins now. Live the rest of your life with the end game in mind. Because here's the reality. We never know how much time we have on this earth. How are people going to remember us? At the end of your life, when everybody's gathered around at your funeral, what do you want people to say about you? Oh, he had a great sense of humor. Oh, she loved to travel. She was a a world traveler. 
Oh, oh they, they made a lot of money in their career. Is that what you want people to say? Or do you want people to say, above all else, I could see Jesus in their life every day? What type of legacy will we leave? What type of legacy will we leave? Spiritual legacy planning for Jesus requires us to run not just a race, but a marathon. We have to run and we have to not stop. Because along the path of life, there's going to be temptations. There's going to be distractions from following Jesus. In fact, author and pastor John Tyson talks about uh, the arc of life in his wonderful book, The Intentional Father. And he says, each stage of life is like a leg in the race. Each stage of life has a focus, but also unique temptations. So let me walk you through some stages. For example, if you're, if you're in college, and some of you are going to college this fall, college is about learning, Right? This stage of life is about getting clarity for your direction, but poor decisions regarding career and especially relationships can set you on a tenuous course in life. And then you get in your 20s, and that's about, 20s is about growing. Right? This decade is often about discovering who you are as a person, but worldly messages about identity and success, they can infiltrate your mind. Then your 30s, your 30s is about editing. Right? In your 30s, you have to start saying no to things and narrowing your focus. And stress can then start to overwhelm you and cause you to find answers in the wrong places. And then you get to your 40s. In your 40s, that's about mastering, Tyson says. In your 40s, you still have energy, by God's grace. You start to craft, you start to master your craft. But the danger is this. When you get in your 40s, usually, you start to get to the pinnacle of your career. And then unique temptations come in that can cause you to take a really big fall. Your 50s, he says, it's about harvesting. In your 50s, you start to see the results of your life investments from earlier. But then the midlife crisis can come in full force, causing you to spend money and time in really, really foolish ways. Then your 60s, that's about guiding. In your 60s, you can start to turn your attention to invest in younger leaders. But this is also where the temptation to think only about yourself because you're, you're winding down your career. It's just about you and getting ready for the next phase. Your 70s is about imparting. You can take everything you've learned and pour back into others. Your 80s, it's about savoring the life you have lived. And then your 90s, he says, that's about preparing. And if you're blessed to live this long, he says, it's, it's about preparing to meet your maker. And it's during these final three decades that there can be a temptation to think that you're done or that God can't use you anymore. So look at that screen. Where are you on the arc of life? Where are you in this race? Now, obviously, not everybody gets to live 100 years on this earth, but if you did, I, th I think these are some pretty good words to describe the arc of life that could be lived. But I want you to see that in each stage of life, there's going to be a temptation to stop following Jesus. And if we give into that temptation, it could tarnish what we've built for 80, 90 years. How do we combat it? Well, Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I what? I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Now, verse 12, it's a transitional verse. You may remember Noah preached last week, and he talked about how Paul closed out the last section speaking about the resurrection and its power. And Paul says, I want more of that power. I, I want to live a life a full life, giving glory to God. Jesus died for me, Paul says, and now I want to live for him. That's the end game. 
Now take notice of the phrase, press on. That means to have an active commitment to the call of Christ. An active commitment to the call of Christ. So he says, no matter what comes your way, no matter where we're at, press on. Why? Dr. William Leslie knew the answer. The end game is a life lived to the glory of God. And that that is the foundational concept for our passage in Philippians this morning. So today what I want to do is I want to talk with you about the end game. In every season of life, we must press on to reach that goal. How do we do it? Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 21, Paul shows us three action steps that we're going to look at. The first one is we have to pursue the right prize. Second, we have to choose the right pattern. And then finally, we have to stay at the right post. And if you hold on to those three actions, that arc of life that we just talked about, you're going to be able to leave a legacy for Jesus and his glorious gospel, because that's what it's about. So let's pray before we look at each of those today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your love and your mercy and, and the gospel, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth, to becoming a human being, living the life that we could never live, dying the death that we should have died, Lord, as you've been reminding us over the last couple chapters, Lord. Jesus, may you become beautiful to us today. May our eyes be captivated by you, and may we live, in a, li- live a life responding to what you've done for us as we pursue you, the prize of being with you, Lord. We give this time to you and ask that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you want to leave a legacy for Jesus, you need to pursue the right prize. Now, truthfully, you know, there's a lot of prizes you can pursue in life. You, you can pursue things like education, and you can get a lot of degrees. You, you, can, you can build a business, and you can make a lot of money. You, you can go to the gym every day and sculpt a body that is the envy of the neighborhood, right? You could do those things, and those are not, those are not bad things, right? But if you want to do spiritual legacy planning for Jesus, you need to give all that you have to the right prize. Look how Paul begins his case in verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, this prize, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Now, the first half of this verse recalls the sanctification discussion that Paul had in chapter 2. Because you remember there, he was exhorting believers to work out your salvation, right? Work out your salvation. In other words, saying that there's an effort on our part, but it's empowered by the work of God in our lives. Now, in chapter 3, he wants us to pursue the calling to follow Jesus, and he wants us to do it with focused intention. How do we do that? He says you have to, what do you have to do? You have to forget what's behind. You have to strain. You have to str- you'd be straining toward what is ahead. Now, the word strain, it, it's a pretty graphic athletic image. So for first century Christians, it would have brought to mind the straining of muscles, the, the clear focus, the, the complete dedication of the runner for this prize. So picture an Olympic sprinter right now. They're running as hard as they can to reach that finish line. And for that Olympic sprinter, nothing else matters. In fact, if you follow professional sports, you probably know that sometimes athletes will play injured because they're focused on that prize, on that trophy, the Stanley Cup or the NBA, whatever they give them in the NBA. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Whatever it takes, this word has a future orientation. 
The runner is looking ahead to what's coming next. And what is that? Look at verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now again, you see that phrase, press on. Paul is calling us to pursue the right prize. What's the prize? It's this heavenward call of Christ. Or put another way, Paul is living for the day when Christ will call him home to heaven to be with him. That's the prize. Until that day, he he said, you got to press on to know and live every dimension of following Christ. Pursue the right prize. But the question is, how do you press on toward this prize? And I would just simply say, first, you have to focus on the finish line and you have to do it early. Focus on the finish line early in life. Now, if you look back at verse 14, most commentators think that the grammatical force of that phrase, heavenly prize, heavenly, I'm sorry, heavenward call, it's meant to focus not on the end of the Christian life, but on the beginning of the Christian life. In other words, what he's saying is we should not wait until the end of our lives when we think it's time to meet Jesus to say, now I'm focused on the heavenward call. No, he's saying that the focus of our entire life early, as early as it possibly can be, should be focused on living for Christ in this heavenward call. And now why does he say that? He says it, I think, because he knows that all of us have a tendency to get distracted. We have a tendency to get distracted. So let me ask you a question. What causes you to look back? Remember, Paul says you got to look forward, straight towards what ahead. But a lot of times we get distracted and we look back. What causes you to look back? Right, when do you take your eyes off of that, that, that forward prize in Christ? So picture yourself right now. Picture you're running a race, right? And some of you are not runners. I, I get it. But just picture you're running a race. You're running as hard as you can. Your muscles and your legs, they're on fire, right? Your, your breath, your lungs, they're, they're, they're beating faster. You're, you're taking faster breaths. The sweat is just drenching down your face. You're, you're wiping your eyes. You can't see. You are laser-focused on the finish. And then you stop. And you look back. Now, my question is, what would would cause you to do that? What what causes us to do that in the Christian life? Well, I'll give you a couple examples. I I think first, I think we often stop when life life gets hard, right? And and life is getting hard, and then we stop. we, We look back riddled with regrets about our choices, and we start to wonder, was this even worth running? Or, or, or we stop when we get older and we get, we get tired, right? You're like, I'm running and I can't run as hard and my heart rate gets, it gets higher more quickly and I can't run as long as I used to. And so what we do is we stop and say, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to look back and I'm going to look at all the things I, I did, all my accomplishments, all the things I was able to achieve. We stop. And sometimes we forget there's other roles in the race. Sometimes maybe you need to not run as hard, but you need to be cheering on others that are younger than you. Or we stop and we look, be- and we look behind, and I had, other, I had people who run tell me this. You stop and you look behind because what are you trying to do? You're trying to see how fast the other runners behind you are running. Right? You, start, you start comparing yourself to where everybody else is, and that might actually cause you to, it might cause you to speed up, but it also might cause you to slow down. So, so Paul, I think, is saying here, don't be concerned with anybody else's race than your own. You need to run as God intended you to run, not the guy behind you, not the person in front of you. 
All these are examples of distractions from the race. So we stop because we're distracted from the prize. Now, I will admit, I am not a runner, okay? In fact, I hate running, I'll tell you that. God gave me short legs, so I, you know, I prefer explosive runs, you know, basketball, racquetball, you know, short runs. But those of you out there that are runners, you marathon runners, and I see a lot of posts out there now of people that, and this must be like marathon season, people were out there running marathons. Um, imagine you're running that marathon and you're running the race to win, but all you do is you stop along the side of the road, you pull out your phone and you take selfies, Right? Look, I found this picture of this girl. She was running the New York Marathon, and she, she posted all these pictures of her t- taking selfies with people that were running next to her. So, so imagine you're, you're running along the race, and you see a friend on the side, and you're like, oh, I got to stop, and click, there's my friend. All right. You're running the New York Marathon. You come to the Empire State Building. Click, there I am, me in the Empire State Building. I'm running along. I got to take a drink of water. Click. You know, every time you stop, you're getting distracted. And you might not finish the race, or at least you're not going to finish it as, as quickly as you intended. Eugene Peterson wrote a great book about the Christian life. He says this, the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. He says, don't get distracted by the things of the world. You got to keep running toward Jesus. Focus on what's ahead. You don't need to look back and wonder. What if I, you know, I think I was missing out. What if I tried that drug, right? What if I slept with more people? What would that have been like? Did I make the right decision in that career move? You don't need to stop and look back at those things, he says. You just got to keep running, being faithful, a long obedience in the same direction toward that heavenward call in Christ. So how do we keep focused on the finish line? Look at verse 15 and 16. He says this, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Now remember, a major focus of the letter of the Philippians has been unity. He says, how do we achieve unity? He had a whole big discussion about that in chapter 2. He says, you've got to have the same mind as Christ. That's what it means to be mature. And then in chapter 3, he tells us, if you are mature, if you have this mind of Christ... Then you need to think differently, and if you think differently about other people, what should you do? Bring it to the Lord. And that requires two actions. You gotta first, you gotta humbly listen to others, and then second, you got you gotta pray. You gotta pray that God would change your heart or change their heart and just bring your heart minds in alignment with the Lord. So so let me ask you this. If it let me ask you this. The last time you had a fight with your spouse, for those of you that are married, did you ever stop and pray about that disagreement, right? And, and, and listen, I, and I mean really pray. I mean, it wasn't like you said, you know what, I'm going to pray about that. And you went in the corner and you pouted and then you came back and just kept reemphasizing your point of view. That's not what I mean. I mean, you, you actually went and you got with God and you said, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you just reveal to me your will and your heart for this situation and, and, and that person that I love? Help me to see the other person as you see them. And you prayed and you waited and you asked the Lord to speak to you. That's how we should pray. Or how many of us pray before we get into a fight online? All right, your thumbs are flying on your phone or your keyboard or whatever uh, because you really want to embarrass that person. You want to win them over with you because you think your words are so eloquent. You want to win them over with your arguments. But did you ever stop and ask how God could use you to witness in that situation? 
Maybe you need to take those social media apps off, off your phone, right, because you need to slow down. So if I could sum it up, we stay focused on the finish line by following the Holy Spirit. We follow the Holy Spirit. We listen for his voice. We allow him to illuminate our heart as we read his word, as we receive instructions from God himself. We allow him to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. That's how you live up to what you've already attained. The Holy Spirit allows us to live in response to the gospel. And we desperately need this because we all get distracted. That's Paul's point here. Some of us right now, we're extremely distracted from our Christian walk. And and, and if you're a graduate about to go off to college, man, I got to tell you, you're going to have a world of choices of distractions, right? Parties, uh, video games, lots of relationships, alcohol, whatever it is, you are going to be tempted to get distracted from the prize of the heavenward call. And so here's my exhortation to you today. You just, you have to start well. As you continue on that arc of life, you're going to always have temptations to veer off course. So, so let me give you some tangible examples before we leave this section. Often, there are deep, hard idols beneath our distractions. In fact, the Puritan writers, they, they focused on four prime idols that tempt us throughout our lives. And, and they're this. First, there's comfort. Right? And comfort says, I can do whatever I want to be safe and comfortable. But many times what God does is God calls us to get uncomfortable when we follow him. Second, there's control. We, 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 we will always have a tendency to think that we know more than God. But sometimes God brings chaos into your life to remind you that you need him, that he is in control. Third, there's power. It makes us feel really good to have power. We're the boss, right? We want to advance that ladder as quickly as we can so we can have a say. But it's only when you know that Christ is your true king that you can live the life that he calls you to live. And then finally, and and this one's pretty hard, I think, it's the idol of reputation. And this one keeps us from being real about our sin. If people knew that I struggled with that, they won't respect me. If people knew that I held that biblical view, I won't have any friends, we think. But what if Jesus is calling you to be bold for your faith, to be vulnerable in your walk with Christ? So look at those four categories. Are any of those right now distracting you from running the race? Because if you want to leave a spiritual legacy for Jesus, first you need to start well. You need to start with the end in mind. You need to not get distracted. So again, let me say one more time, for high school graduates, let me just say this for just a moment, um, and, and let me be as clear as I possibly can be if I wasn't before. The only thing that matters in life is a life lived for Jesus. Nothing else matters. You, living all of your life for him and focusing on the finish line, that needs to be your central core focus for everything you do. You'll get later in life and you realize, I live for all these things and really it didn't, where did it get me? Focus on the end game. The world will tell you otherwise. Don't listen to them. Pastor Kevin DeYoung wrote a great little book for graduates. I encourage you to pick it up or buy it for a graduate. And it's called Don't Be True to Yourself. Here's his advice. He says, you should not be true to yourself. Counter the world. Unless you have died to your old self and your new self is raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. The real you is worth letting out if the real you is dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. 
See, the world will tell you, be true to who you are. But Jesus says, no, be true to me always. And if you make that decision now, early in life, you're starting the race well. You're running with the end game in mind. So follow your heavenly call. Pursue the right prize. But there is more. Right? As you're pursuing that prize, you need people to help you. God gives us people to follow. We need, secondly, to choose the right pattern. So pursue the right prize, but then choose the right pattern. And choosing the right pattern means that you're getting the right people investing in your life. You need people older than you to emulate. So think right now about people who are mentors in your life. Who, who has or who is investing in you? Are they models of Christ in your life? Because Paul says we need these people. Look at verse 17. He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, look at the language he uses, right? What does he say? He, use, he says example, uh, model, right? Example, model. We need pictures of godliness in our lives. In fact, you may, you may remember Ken Huber preached about that a few weeks ago. Uh, go back and check out that message, the end of Philippians 2. Paul says we should focus on the models in our lives who live like Jesus. Now, yesterday, if you missed it, we had a men's breakfast, and uh, thank you again for everybody who put that on. Uh, what a wonderful time of fellowship and connection. My, my heart and my stomach was full. <clears throat> Gotta love those casseroles. At every men's breakfast, we have a presentation, and yesterday we heard from men who took part in something we've been doing here called radical mentoring. And I gotta tell you, uh, just what a picture of Philippians 3.17. Philippians 3.17 is, is being lived out right here. Because this 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 program, this group understands that we need men who follow Jesus to teach younger men what it means to follow Jesus. So people like Jim Hutchinson and Bruce Cork and Paul Wilford, just thank you for being patterns to follow. These men invested in younger men for nine, ten months, and it was just, it was such a blessing to hear what God did. If you're not, we're not part of those groups, I, I would challenge you to pray about the next round that's coming this fall. Uh, stay tuned for details about that, but I would just encourage you to, to really consider it. Choose the right pattern. So Paul emphasizes this point with a pastoral heart. He cares deeply about these believers. Look at verse 18. He says, For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So take notice, it says here, Paul was brought to tears. Paul was weeping. And this is the only time in his letters that he says he cried. And that's significant. Because he says people have rejected Jesus. They're following the wrong patterns. And, and what he's saying here is these were Christians, even Christian teachers who were once part of the faith and then left it. This verse appeals to at least two groups of people. I, I'll just speak first from a pastor's heart. It breaks my heart as people when people walk away from the faith. And, and I've watched people I've invested in, people I've shared the gospel with, people I went to seminary with. I've watched them walk away from the faith because they chose to follow a different pattern. The wrong prize captured their heart. And every time that happens, it just stings. It brings tears. Now, second, if you're a parent out there, I'll just speak to the parent's heart for a second. I've heard so many stories of parents whose children are not walking with the Lord. 
And if you're a parent here today who knows what that's like, I just want to pray for you. Lord God, would you, just, would you just be with parents, Lord God? Would you bless them? Would you give them strength? And would you encourage them, Lord? And would you get, encourage them to get on their knees and pray for, their, pray for their kids, Lord? I pray that in Jesus' name, Lord. Because I look at my own children and I think it would be so difficult to watch any one of my kids rejecting Jesus Christ. How painful. Amanda and I, we pray every day that our kids would choose Jesus and not the world. I pray that they would choose the right pattern to follow. And so Paul weeps and we weep because people we loved, people we invested in, people we prayed for, they didn't press on. They were distracted. We spoke about those distractions earlier, but now Paul is going to take it to another level here. He says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Just devastating language. Look at verse 19. Paul tells us they have a different end game. He says their destiny is destruction. Destruction. What a harsh term. Not just their lives here on earth, but in the life to come. Eternal separation from God if they continue down this path, he says. And friends, if this, if this verse doesn't break your heart, something is wrong with us. In the rest of the verse now, Paul is going to show us three paths leading to this destruction. The first path is worship of self. So he continues in verse 19. The destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And that fo- that, the focus of that phrase is on personal satisfaction, where it's all about you and your desires. The stomach image brings to mind somebody who is selfishly overindulging in food. They're, they're pigging out, right, for themselves, And to be sure, this is a warning against things like the American individualistic mindset, where our current cultural moment has given rise to the self and what theologian Carl Truman calls expressive individualism. It's all about us. It's about our wants, our desires, our feelings, our fame. I'll give you an example. Some of you probably know the singer Taylor Swift. Now, I remember her when she was young and before she was a huge pop star, and in her younger years, she came across as really humble and deferential, and now, I'm told, I haven't been to a concert, but if you go to one of her concerts, there's actually a time in the concert where she'll stop singing and just look out and smile at the audience as they applaud and they cheer for her. And I'm told now this, this has been happening, and, and it's, it's like three minutes, and now it's been getting longer. It's three minutes. It's four minutes. She'll just sit up there, and people will cheer and shout, and she's just smiling like, yeah, yeah, I'm awesome. It's intoxicating, right? Parents, again, let me exhort you, especially if you've got younger kids, be careful not to instill in them worship of self. Beware the training we were training them to think they're the center of the universe by like, taking all the pictures and putting it on social media and training them to wait for the camera. Teach them that God is the only one who's worthy of worship. Because when we worship ourselves, we repeat that original sin of Genesis 3. It doesn't lead to holiness and humility. It leads to selfishness and destruction. Now, second, the second path, he says, is celebration of evil. If you look at verse 19, he continues. He says, their glory... Not just their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. And the word glory or doxa in the Greek means the central focus of our lives. It's what you think about before you go to sleep. It's what you think about the first thing you wake up in the morning. It refers to what we celebrate. Whose glory are these people living for, God's or their own? 
Now again, there's a lot of things that we celebrate in our culture. There are things that we celebrate that are, that, there was things we celebrate that were good that are now rejected. And there's things that we used to reject that are now celebrated as good. Worship of self and celebration of evil, that leads to the final path, and that's rejection of the eternal. Look one more time at verse 19. He finishes up and he says, not just their God is their stomach, not just their glory is their shame. He says, their mind is set on earthly things. And that final phrase focuses on an earthly mindset of those who have rejected the faith. Paul says they're not living for the end game. They're living for the here and now, and they're ruining their spiritual legacy. In fact, John Piper famously said this, life is short, eternity is long, live like it. So worship of self, celebration of evil, they're fueled by this earthly mindset. He says if you follow these patterns, it's going to lead to destruction. So be careful. Don't get distracted. I'll give you an example that broke my heart a few years ago. Some of you may know the former preacher Joshua Harris. When he was young, he famously wrote that book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Influenced a bunch of people. When he got older, he became a pastor in a large church in Maryland. He was a conference speaker. He wrote another book, and it was entitled Dug Down Deep. And it was all about the importance of doctrine and orthodoxy. But a few years ago now, he announced on Instagram that he was leaving the ministry. And not just leaving the ministry, he was leaving his wife and the Christian faith altogether. Here's what he said. He said, I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And this was a guy who was a pastor, who defended the faith, who gave his whole life to it, and then he left. It's heartbreaking. But this is what Paul's talking about in this verse. Don't think it can't happen to you or me. Paul says you got to press on you got to press on. you got to keep the end game in view no matter what. Living with the end game in mind requires that we not just start well, but that we continue well. So if I could speak to those of you that are in the middle years of life, I would just say this. There's a lot of traps that we can fall into when you're in your 40s and your 50s, and you know we're living with growing and increasingly immense stress. Family commitments are more complicated. Uh, You never get time to yourself. You think you need an assistant to handle your financial requests. College? Who's got time or money for that? It's very easy to take your eyes off the finish line. You start to feel that downward pull of your flesh that can lead into things like alcohol abuse and pornography and gambling and anger outbursts and just a general disconnection from the people around you. See, in in midlife, Paul says the same thing. Keep going. Press on. Keep that end game in view. Even as you get older, Paul says, choose the right pattern. If you're in your 40s, find somebody in their 50s and 60s who's lived just a little bit longer. If you're in your 60s, find somebody in their 80s and learn how to continue well. We always need somebody to show us the right pattern. Now, before I leave this section, I I just want to speak for a moment about the passing of Pastor Tim Keller. And I know, I know Noah mentioned this last week, um, stole my thunder here, but uh, I, have, I have to mention this. Um, many of you know that he's had a, just a great influence on myself and Pastor Dave as it relates to preaching and ministry. And the reason I want to bring this up now is because Tim Keller, and, and a lot of you have probably followed him, has so many great quotes and insights 
I've seen them floating around on Facebook just teaching us what the gospel is, how to live the gospel out. But what I've found as I followed this over the last two weeks is that the most impactful thing about Tim Keller was the way he lived his life. Person after person who knew him well would just simply say, Tim Keller was the real deal. He really lived what he preached. He loved Jesus. In fact, a recent opinion article highlighted how he mentored the next generation. The author says this. He says, the most impressive thing about him was that you never came away exclaiming, isn't Tim Keller amazing? Instead, you said, isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he beautiful? And then the author concludes, there's no greater legacy. There's a Facebook account entitled The Daily Keller, and the guy who runs it would put up Tim Keller quotes every day, and then when Tim passed, this account holder, whose name is also Tim, uh, made a post about the first time he met Tim Keller at a conference. He says, I spoke with him for a few minutes, but right before he was about to go on stage, I went up to him and I said, I just said, Tim, I got to tell you one thing. Thank you for making Jesus beautiful. And then he said, Tim Keller paused, choked back some tears, and just simply said, that's the point. That's the point. Tim Keller offered not just words, but a pattern to follow in life and in death. He lived and passed with the end game in mind. What will people say about you? Are you making Jesus beautiful in your life right now? Pursue the right prize, choose the right pattern. But the last one, briefly, is probably the hardest one. You have to stay at the right post. Stay at the right post. And I got to tell you, the right post is where you are right now. God has placed you here with unique circumstances and abilities to build his kingdom. He wants to use you right here, right now, to bring heaven to earth in your spheres of influence. And so Paul starts by reminding us in verse 20 who we are. He says, but our citizenship is in where? Is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you are a citizen of heaven. That phrase comes back to chapter 1. You may remember Pastor Dave highlighted that Greek word in our, in our initial uh, weeks, that, that Greek word polytuma, which is used for citizens and citizenship. And it's where we get our English word for politics from. Now, speaking of politics, you may have heard there's an election happening in 2024. And things are going to start heating up over the next 18 months. There's going to be plenty of opportunities to get distracted from the prize. There's going to be plenty of opportunities for division to creep into the church. And that doesn't mean that politics are unimportant. There's major issues to debate, issues that should be debated in grace. But we should seek to live out our Christian convictions in a way that blesses the world. But my point is, and I think Paul's point, is that we have to remember that ultimately, ultimately, we serve a better king and a better kingdom. And in the end, no matter what, in the end, everything's going to be all right. Our orders ultimately come from the heavenly throne, not an earthly one. Where do your orders come from? Now, the image of citizenship was a powerful one here. The Philippians, man, they were proud of their Roman citizenship. But it went even deeper than that. Philippi was an outpost of the Roman Empire. And Paul was writing to them from Rome, the capital. And so every day, they're regularly awaiting news from the capital, from the seat of power on how to conduct their business. And so when Paul says, you're citizens of heaven, what he's doing is he's cutting right to their hearts and ours. 
He's reminding them that no matter how proud you are of your earthly citizenship, your heavenly one matters more. What does Paul say? He says, live as citizens of heaven. How? you got to practice countercultural patience. Because notice he says, we're waiting for Jesus to return. And the word, the word for Savior, Jesus the Savior, is the Greek word soter. In this context, it often referred to the emperor, Caesar. He was the soter. He was the Savior. And what Paul is doing right here is he's taking that concept specifically and turning it on its head. Because he says the real soter is Jesus. We patiently and hopefully wait for his second coming. And that means that even if the world is falling apart, we can live with hope because Jesus will win in the end. How do we live with hope? we got to stay at our outpost on earth and daily seek instructions from the true king. We're holding the line until our king comes with his angel armies to remake this world. So at any point in life, there can be a tendency to abandon your post because we get impatient. Oh, he's not coming back. I'm just going to give up. Or God doesn't answer as quickly as we think he should. Staying at our post requires patience. And as we practice patience, we need to to feel the upward pull. Look at verse 21. He says, who, Jesus, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He says our bodies will be transformed. So many of the distractions that we face today relate to the downward pull of our bodies. We're drawn to the things of this world. And yes, God blesses us with many things in life, but in the end, they're going to fade away. And what's going to be left is the eternal. When Jesus, our soter, returns, we're told the trumpet will sound, and we're going to be raised, we're going to be changed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be changed, we're going to receive a glorious eternal body. It will be beyond anything we can ever imagine. That's the end of history. That's the final end to the arc of life. And it's just the beginning. And church, do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? It means that no matter what life throws at us, we'll get through. God is in control. You didn't get into that school? It's going to be okay. You got passed over for that job? It's going to be okay. You got diagnosed with cancer? As hard as that is to believe, it's going to be okay. Your child's born with special needs? It's going to be okay. You know why? Because the soter is coming. Jesus is coming. We don't know exactly when, but he's coming. And he's coming with a power that one day will bring everything under his control. And until that time, Paul says, Christian, stay at your post. You may be discouraged, but like Dr. William Leslie, you never know how God is going to use you right now. Christians never run around like the sky is falling because we await a soter, a savior from heaven. Are you living today like the Savior is coming back soon? Christians, stay at your post. You never know how long the arc of life will be. You could live 25 years. You could live 100 years. You never know. But if you want to leave a spiritual legacy for Jesus, you have to press on. You have to pursue the right prize. You got to choose the right pattern. You got to stay at the right post. Because in the end, Jesus is going to make it all new. 
You may not see the impact you have in somebody's life until you get to heaven. But you can leave a legacy, not for you, but for Jesus. So as the worship team comes back on stage, I want you to look quickly back at verse 21 and look at what Paul says here. Paul emphasizes that Christ, the Soter, he's coming, and he's going to come by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. He's going to transform us. Now, if you see that word power, it's the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get the English word dynamite from. Paul says Jesus has power over everything. It's a dynamic power. It's an effective power. It's a power available to us at every stage of life, in every leg of the race. And it's a message that we have to come back to over and over again. Jesus gives us the power to follow him. At each stage of the arc of life, he says you got to press on toward the end game in Christ's power. Are you about to go to college Paul says you got to trust in Christ's power for the end game. Are you in your 20s? you got to trust in Christ's power to get to the end game. Are you in your 30s? you got to trust in Christ's power to get to the end game. Are you in your 40s? you got to trust in Christ's power to get to the end game. Are you in your 50s? you got to trust in Christ's power to get to the end game. Your 60s, trust in Christ's power to get to the end game. Your 70s, trust in Christ's power to get to the end game. In your 80s, trust in Christ's power to get to the end game. In your 90s, trust in Christ's power to get to the end game. Press on to the end. Don't get distracted. Start well. Continue well. Finish well for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God alone. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, Paul offered a hymn for the gospel. And he told us that Jesus left his place in heaven. He came to earth. He became a human being. He died a death on the cross for you and for me because of our sin debt. And then he rose again from the dead. And in chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, Paul says this, At the name of Jesus, one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, one day, one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So don't abandon your post. The Savior is coming. The Savior is coming. The Savior is coming. And one day... Philippians 3.21 tells us he's going to arrive with power to transform our lowly bodies into glorious bodies and we'll be with Jesus forever. That's the end game. Pursue the right prize, choose the right pattern, stay at the right post. And then, then, you'll leave a spiritual legacy for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness, your glory, your your power in our lives. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place, for my sin, for rising again from the dead as the first fruits, Paul tells us, of the hope that we have in the future, that heavenward call, Lord. May we live for that. May we keep the finish line in focus early in life and throughout our lives so that you would receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.